Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun. So winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome to the first of a new mini-series celebrating 70 years of Autosport. The first issue of Autosport magazine came out on the 25th of August 1950. And to celebrate that milestone, we've decided to take on the challenge of picking out the greatest cars uh, from the history of motorsport. By category, fairly predictably, we're going to kick off with Grand Prix cars. I'm your host, Chief Editor Kevin Turner, and joining me I've got three special guests. The first of whom is normally the host, and is our Grand Prix Editor. Alex Kalinorkas, welcome. You're, you're a pundit for once. How does, that, how does it feel not to be hosting? Delightfully relaxing, I must say. Although, you know, I just think this is, this is classic autosport, as what Twitter would, would tell us. All we care about is Formula One. We started off with Grand Prix cars. It's, it's just typical, really. You know, it's not, it's not what it used to be, frankly. For those um, wanting to know what other categories we're going to go through, we are going to go through sports cars, touring cars, rally cars, junior single-seaters uh, and Indy cars. Uh, not necessarily in that order. We'll pick a winner from each of those episodes and then we'll have a grand finale where we have a proper argument about it to pick the greatest competition car of all time. So my second guest is our technical editor and that's one of the oldest positions in Autosport because John Bolster was the, famously the technical editor for the first 34 years of Autosport. Jake Boxall leg, so big shoes to fill there. Well, I'm not that old. No, uh, you're not you know, that I've old. Do- no, I've done true. about a year plus of that of that stint so i've got a few years to go yet before i'm matching uh sir bolster um we'll see we'll see how that goes <laughs> kev as you as you're the boss do you think he's got it in him to last another 33 years you don't get to drive as many interesting cars as uh, as bolster used to he used to get himself into all sorts of a fantastic machinery right up to to grand prix cars actually so uh yeah sadly we can't offer that same thing to you it's a bit harder these days 
I've never seen Jake actually drive. He claims he can, despite the amount of times it took him to pass his test. <laughs> I, I end up doing all the driving and it all gets very stressful. Well, I currently don't own... My parents recently scrapped my old car, which hadn't been used for about three years, but it was a, a Renault Clio and the electrics in it were awful and it was just a permanent source of frustration that's kind of put me off of driving for a few a few months well in a desperate attempt to try and get things uh, back on track i'm going to introduce uh, my final guest um, who also is the only one here who's brought some proper memorabilia in the background motorsport memorabilia um, that's uh, at our f1 news hound luke smith luke welcome to it um welcome to this you looking forward to it yeah, definitely, Kev. Be good to get into it. I've got a, a Ferrari sports car on my wall, which I think is probably more fitting for one of the upcoming uh, podcasts you'll be doing. But uh, yeah, really good to have a look back through through F1 history. And uh, I'm a relative newbie on the old sport books, but obviously uh, mega to actually be uh, yeah looking back on 70 years of this wonderful magazine. Fantastic. Right. So the the criteria that we'll be looking at, um, first of all, how successful the car was, fairly obviously, how much they changed the game. Obviously, some cars did change the game more than others. Um, so we'll be factoring that in as well and then our uh, get out of jail free card which is a fever rating where we basically get to say what we like the most so uh, that gives us a bit of wriggle room I think so um, uh, and that's actually gives us a good place to start because the first car that we're going to talk about uh, is one of those cars I think is just absolutely fantastic and we are starting pre-war pre-second world war so before all sport had even begun an absolutely iconic design the Mercedes W125 5.6 5.6 litre straight eight supercharged machine producing nearly 650 brake horsepower uh, on tyres. If you've ever seen a picture of one, you'll think, how on earth did they keep that thing on the road? So, uh, so, so, Jake, this is one of those sort of iconic silver arrows that sort of sets up the legend, really, for, for Mercedes in motorsport. Well, the thing is, it was originally born out of a Mercedes that wasn't massively successful. It was the, the W25 when it was driven by the Mercedes engineer Rudolf Uhlenhout, who was contracted to design the W125, uh, he found that it was the suspension was was so stiff that it was causing the, the chassis to flex. He was like, "Well, that's obviously just dreadful because this thing hasn't got any grip. Uh, it, it broke down quite a lot, so they had to completely change." what they were doing um they stiffened the chassis and softened the suspension so kind of swung it in the other way when they were developing it as you mentioned it had that supercharged straight eight um and i'm sure there are not a lot of people who because you know supercharging is usually sort of restricted to kind of like you know like the american muscle car scene or something like that and it's like what's the difference between a supercharger and a turbocharger um you have a turbocharger that generates the compression through uh, the exhaust gas the supercharger is actually stuck onto the engine so although it helps you know compress the air to create that cleaner combustion it also saps a little bit of power as well but it was a massive massive engine a hugely hugely powerful engine um and i'm sure that you've got sort of a lot more more on it than i do but it was yeah it became a very very successful car at the well before the war well, you're absolutely right. Of course, also Union, who were the other the other major German effort, the um, Nazi backing both um, both of those efforts in Grand Prix racing, had taken initiative with the C-Type, uh, which is a, a mid or rear engine car, which is something that we'll obviously come back to later on. Um, and that had taken initiative in 1936. But uh, the W125 uh, basically was, a, was Mercedes striking back. It took six major wins. Uh, and uh, Rudolf Graciola was the European champion in 1937, which, and the European championship in those days effectively was 
was the forerunner of the world championship and just some numbers for some people who think oh that's all a bit too old i'm not so interested um because uh, we talk about average speeds in grand prix racing and the record is a little bit over 150 miles an hour of the as the fastest grand prix of all time and most races now are won well if, if you're getting near 140 miles an hour that's quick but in 1937 at the avis Rennen. Uh, Herman Lang won heat two at an average speed of 162.6 miles an hour and the fastest lap actually was set by an auto union at over 170 miles an hour so that's with no downforce no safety features at all you wouldn't even add crash helmets I think that sort of puts it okay so it's a very high speed track of course it was um, but uh, I think they're sort of genuine heroes and legends the uh, the drivers that climbed into those things and tried to tried to tame them was that the year that they were going so quickly at avis that the cars were actually breaking like bits were just flying off it because they happened well, fairly regularly it was so punishing the, yeah? they were although that did happen avis but the uh the mercedes and auto unions were so well engineered and well built they tended to stand up to that kind of punishment normally quite quite well what did fail is that this is one of those times where motorsport is that the car technology outstrips tire technology so um something that sounds um, familiar in 2020 some some solace to pirelli with their with their struggles of keeping up with mercedes in 2020 is that the tire manufacturers were struggling to keep up with auto union and mercedes in 1937 um so a fantastic beast it's a shame that we don't see them uh see them out in historic racing anymore they're just too valuable mercedes like all the german manufacturers very good at looking after their history so they're all locked up in the in the museum or most of them are so I guess the question to you chaps then is do we think that this should go through to the final uh, as a pre-war Leviathan or should we should we leave it now and move on to the next one? Because there's some exciting cars coming up and it'll be fair to give them all a, a fair crack of the whip I think. Particularly with the next one seeing as that is the next super famous super successful Mercedes. W196 so obviously we've had the second world war Mercedes had other things to worry about immediately after the war um, but the moment they came back to uh, the new Formula 1 for 1954 2.5 litre unsupercharged engines um, and what the floor with everyone basically so yes Alex is the is the is the W196 a more worthy car for this do you think well in terms of in terms of the world championship absolutely um but obviously that's not what we're here to assess this is this is a grand prix car you know of all of all eras it's got the sort of fame factor if you know what i mean like it's it sort of you, you think of mercedes eras in formula 1 and that is that's the original one. They they came up, they dominated, they disappeared for for all those years, and then come back again in 2010. And eventually, they're so successful. What I want to know, though, because I know that like if you go to back to 1950, obviously, which has been in which has been in the news a lot recently because of the celebration of Formula One, the World Championship anniversary, the 70 years since that Silverstone race in April. Obviously, we're celebrating our own anniversary this year, celebrating with Autosport. Um, at, in 1950, those cars were essentially still left over from the categories that were racing pre-war they weren't particularly new because of what had happened obviously understandably you know in the intervening years so how much more of a step jake maybe you're i don't know if you if you've got the answer to this how much more of a step is the w196 compared to the w125 or is it an evolution is it you know what's what's going on? I, I genuinely don't know the answers i'm just i'm interested to know well i think we're at, we're at a point in history then where Obviously, people didn't really understand aerodynamics, but they understood the merits of low drag. And of course, you had the, that low drag version um, that, that you know they take to all the quick circuits. Um, there was sort of that understanding that was starting to come in. Um, I do think that in that sort of intervening period, Formula One was still sort of feeling itself out as a as a category. 
um, whether the W196 is sort of as, as great as the W125. I think that's, well, that's one that we can answer. Uh, just to sort of few a few notes on the on the car, we spoke about that big supercharged inline A engine that the one two five had. Um, but Formula One, it sort of had a specific engine formula. You could have either a two point five liter um, naturally aspirated engine, or you could have a zero point seven five supercharged engine, which is a lot smaller than the uh, than the big supercharged inline A that the one two five had. Um, Mercedes looked at both uh, and they did some tests with a very very small capacity supercharged engine they found that the fuel consumption was about three or four times more than it would be with the with, with, with the with the naturally aspirated engine which is you know a huge huge amount and it was sapping power as well because again the supercharged engine it's actually driven by by the crank so they made this big 2.5 litre straight eight uh, they came up with this this aero kit for it for all the low drag circuits. It was sort of a more a formulaic car. You you were bound by more regulations than perhaps you would have been back, back then. Um, something like that, really. It did have a couple of interesting features, didn't it? it had desmodromic valves, um, mechanical direct fuel injection. Um, I think it it changed the game in terms of the team changed the game. The level of professionalism and preparation did blow because obviously the Italians were Ferrari and pre- previously Alfa Romeo Maserati they kind of ruled the roost in Grand Prix racing um, Alfa Romeo had gone by then of course but I'd say the most technically interesting car of that season was probably the we're talking about 54-55 was the Lancia D50 um, but Lancia didn't have the funding to uh, to really make the most of that car and ended up giving the cars to Enzo Ferrari of course and Mercedes did also have one manual Fangio and Sterling Moss and once Alberto Ascari had been killed in a sports car accident, I would suggest that Moss and Fangio probably would have won those races in any one of two or three cars on that grid that year, um, just because they were clearly the two best drivers in the field. So uh, I also personally don't really like the look of it. I'm not a huge fan what? of it. If we're going fever rating, the W196 doesn't do it for me. I think the D50 or 250F... A much nicer looking car than W196. Oh, I'm I'm getting I'm gonna a, have a I'm gonna have an horror look here. from Luke. Go on, Luke. Go on. Um, no, I think JBL, you go first. I mean, I have a real, real soft spot for the 1920s, 1930s kind of Art Deco style cars, and that was probably it had so many hallmarks of that, and I just I really like that. It's just the swooping wheel arches, just that kind of thing. I go mad for that, and I don't know why. I don't really understand it. I'm a weird person. Thanks, uh, Gatsby. To me, like I think of like classic fifties F one, and that that's the car that comes to mind. And like you sort of think about sort of the origins of the Silver Arrows, and like there's just so much. I know there's just a lot of like romanticism built up in that. And when Mercedes came back to F one in twenty ten, like that was that was obviously the car that you kind of thought back to and was like, oh, this is like mega, so so cool. So yeah, I I, I like it, and I get what you mean, Kev. Like it does kind of look a little bit like a sports car, but part of me, I know it's quite 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 quirky. I like it for that. But I think that the the one that's most famous for is the open wheel version, which was really what I was referring to, the boxy front end. And I think that most people, if you ask what the sort of archetypal 1950s Grand Prix car is, most would say the 250F Maserati, even though it actually wasn't it wasn't as good as the Merc, it wasn't as good as the Lancia, really, um, which is why it's not on this list. <laughs> um, so uh, just a few stats. So one, it did win uh, nine World Championship races. 
um, both in streamlined and, and open form. Fangio used it having started the season in, in the 250F to win 9-54 Drivers' Championship and then won again in 55 with Moss following. Uh, there wasn't a Constructors' Championship at that point, so it couldn't win that. Um, my argument against it, I guess apart from the aesthetics thing, which clearly is subjective, is that I don't think it really does change the game. I don't think it sets the template for what follow-up cars, uh, yeah, the, what comes along. Um, afterwards so I, I think it's a, a, a fantastic uh, shows the prowess of Mercedes and um, what they could achieve but if uh, unless there are any objections I think it probably falls by the wayside at this point yep I think that's very yeah. fair yeah okay so moving on and this car is I think completely different in that this is all about changing the game so the Cooper T51 Owen Maddox uh, design really a development of well arguably going back to 500cc cars that Cooper started to produce in the late 40s, early 50s, um, but I guess perhaps more closely related to the T43 and T45. Um, it won five World Championship races. Its predecessors won three. And of course, uh, Jack Brabham uh, won the first of his three World Championships in it. The big thing about this, this Luke, of course, is it teaches Formula 1 where the engine should be. Yeah, exactly. It's a. I mean, nowadays seems quite obvious, doesn't it? The engine always goes at the back of the car, but it's uh, that was the big game changer. And I think when we sort of do looking at the criteria you've set out in terms of changing the game, I probably would go as far as saying on this list, I don't think there is actually a car that quite ticks that box as as much as the Cooper T T fifty one. Like I think it is. It just. Yeah, it, it, that's that, that made that that shifted the whole paradigm of how you design a Formula One car, basically. And I think for that, like, it absolutely has to go all the way, in my opinion, um, to our final vote. What do you think, Jake? I mean, this is a, its not the first successful mid-engined Grand Prix car, but it is—it is the car that makes it stick. It makes everyone else have to make that move, including Enzo Ferrari, who didn't want to. Yeah, exactly. To make Enzo Ferrari stick an engine in the back of the car—that was. Uh, a, a monumental moment that was as Luke said a paradigm shift but it, it kind of makes sense it, in, it's weird that no one really did it sooner um, I suppose when when it comes to a racing car it's always going to be rear wheel drive um, to you know get the power down a little bit more more evenly and you don't have uh, as much you don't end up getting the understeer that you would get with a, a front engined uh, front wheel drive car it makes sense to have it in the back, and it was. It's weird that people didn't really go for make that jump sooner. Um, it, it took it as early as 1959, which took a lot of time, uh, nine whole years in Formula One. Um, but it, it, it makes sense because you don't have to shove a giant prop shaft through the car. You have more weight at the rear, uh, and so you get more of a more of an oversteer moment than you do understeer, and that sort of became responsible for everything going forward as well. Um, you know, it, was, it became the first rear engine world championship winner, obviously. Uh, people obviously then refined the concept, but yeah, it was a big, big game changer. Yeah, and on on that basis, I think it we're, we will put it through. I have a few arguments uh, to make against the Cooper, but I will save those for when we're... Uh, when we're debating that, debating the final, we'll move on to so so Alex, the first great design from one of the greatest, arguably the greatest. That's another debate, really. Uh, Formula One designers of all time, Colin Chapman and the Lotus Twenty Five, um, which obviously we're into we're into the monocoque, another game changer. 
Absolutely. And, you know, it's just it's the it's this one's iconic because of Jim Clark and the success that he has with it. So I think that on that basis, you've got to be putting it forwards. But I'm just curious about this this premise of how much it changes the game and where, and why, in, not in terms of this car in particular, but in terms of the whole episode, Kev. Um, just curious, because when we get on to later years, when the rules are so difficult, it's not the car that changes the game. It's just the game is set and the car is either good or it isn't. I'm thinking of the, the Mercedes that we're going to come to at the end in terms of 2014. So how much of a factor is that, if you see what I mean? Well, I think that's that's sort of up to us to decide, isn't it? I think um, the history of pushing the boundaries of motorsport, which obviously Formula One is the best example of, is about ma- is about making those big leaps. But of course, the more you make, the fewer there are to find. So it's a law of diminishing returns. Um, and uh, that's why it's just one of the criteria. I don't think you could ignore it because I think... Uh, uh, I, I think that those are the milestone cars that have got us to where we are today with the Mercedes W11 being you know, the closest to perfection racing car there has been probably, um, which is another debate, I suppose. But we've got there because of these cars. So I think it has to be factored in. Um, but, you know, it's not the only criteria. The, the, the winning car of this list won't necessarily be the most innovative if you like it's the combination of being innovative enough because some cars have been too far ahead of their time and not worked at all so there's definitely a balance to be struck hopefully that answers your uh, answers your question alex uh, and it, one that it, listeners may have had of course it does indeed it does indeed well we're coming on to we've got four lotuses on this list so would it be worth having a mini intra lotus scrap to decide which one oh, goes I'm through gonna, or more than one that goes through Yes, I'm going to break it, if I may, into two pairs. So the, the, we've got the Lotus 25, so um, monocoque, reduced frontal area, lying the driver down, which actually Jim Clark, had. To, it took him a while to get his get his head round. Um, that slightly drift, different driving position, which obviously we all take for granted now. And the Lotus 49, which came along in 1967, which uh, introduced two, two major things, the Cosworth DFV, which is undoubtedly F1's greatest engine. I mean, there's not really an awful lot of point in having that debate, although I suppose that the family of hybrid Mercedes engines will be uh, the only other car, the only other engine you put up against that. Uh, and, of course, the engine was a stressed member, which, again, all racing cars now have. Also, throwing wings. It wasn't the car that brought wings to Formula 1, uh, but, uh, but it was one of the early pioneers, and sponsorship. So, yes, okay, well, let's go with, with Alex then uh, and, and the duel there, the Lotus 25 versus the Lotus 49. 14 wins for the 25, 12 for the 49. Jake, do you have a, a preference here as to which one of those you'd put through to the final? Uh, I think I'm going to go with the 25 over the 49. Um, and that's because, uh, uh, simply because without, you know, the, the 25 bringing the monocoque to the party, you wouldn't have really been able, you, you could have done, the, the Cosworth as a stress member, but you still wouldn't have had that chassis rigidity that the monocoque brought. And that is something that the majority of, if not, you know, 99.9% of race cars use. I'm sure there's a few tubular space frame chassis still hanging around out there, but everyone's got a monocoque now. Um, it's just, it's the way to go. You have that chassis rigidity. You don't have that sort of torsion under, under roll, which is going to make the car unpredictable. Um, the the twenty and also the twenty five was 
better looking as well. Um, so for, for all of those reasons, I'm going to pick that. I'm, can, I, can I jump in here, Kevin, and say I agree with, with Jake in, in terms of that over the notice 25. I'm going to go for it because it's got the Jim Clark factor, which no disrespect to Graham Hill and Joachim Rint when it comes to the Lotus 49. But when you consider Jim Clark is right up there with the greatest racing drivers of all time. That's what would give me the edge there in terms of the car, you know, the era that that was successful there was, was with him in it. Well, you could you could turn that around. Perhaps it's the point to bring Luke in. Do you the cars I'm looking for are ones with multiple drivers that have been able to win in it, and the Lotus Twenty Five was a very much a Jim Clark car, whereas the Lotus Forty Nine won in the hands of Clark, of course, before he was killed in Formula Two accident at Hockenheim in nineteen sixty eight, and Graham Hill and Jochenrint. So. In that regard, do, would you say, well, if a car can win with more drivers at the wheel, perhaps that works more in its favour? Yeah, that is true, I guess. But I, I no, I, th- I'm, I think I'm going to have to agree with both Alex and JBL on this one. I, I, for me, just the, 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 the 25, like for that to be sort of the definitive like 60s car with with Clark behind it. I mean, it was yeah, he was the only driver to, to win it and sort of like take, take the title in it, but. That to me, that shouldn't diminish on sort of the car's greatness, just because it, it was only him who had that success. And had it had it not been for his untimely passing, then maybe maybe that would have been the same story for the Lotus Forty Nine as well. Maybe he would have gone on to sort of just enjoy even more success with that car. So, yeah, I think for that, and also if we're talking about fee rating as well, like it's a it's a cool looking car. Like it's it's little, it's skinny, decks out in in the green and green and uh, yellow colours of Lotus as well. That just I think ticks all the boxes. I have to say, also sounds fantastic. Um, we were fortunate enough to do a, a track test with um, four lotuses, the four lotuses we're talking about, um, with Ben Anderson at Hethel last year. Uh, and everyone talks about the Cosworth DV. Of course, it's a great engine, but the the Climax V8 in the back of the Lotus sounds fantastic as well. So yeah, I'm very happy for the the Lotus 25 uh, to go through. And actually, a little fun fact as well: the Lotus 49 still holds the record for the biggest pace advantage not converted to a world championship because in 1967 it was more than 1% faster than the next best car and they managed not to win either the driver's title or the constructor's title so that probably that's got to count against it as well surely squandering such that would be like Mercedes not winning the championship this year with the W11 which I think we're pretty sure is not going to be a problem for them so the next pair of Lotuses uh, Lotus 72 so in the contrast here one of them lasted a long time but Jake, Lotus seventy nine. It was got. It was there in a, for a moment, and then it was completely. It was completely overwhelmed. So, quite contrasting histories for the Lotus seventy two and the Lotus seventy nine. Yeah, I think if we're picking one, uh, it's a bit of a no brainer for me because, for me, the Lotus seventy two is the one that created the modern Formula One car as we know it. Side pods at, at the sides. Um, this continued exploration into aerodynamics. Um, it, every every Formula One car at the time was this sort of tubular cigar shape, um, and what Lotus did was they they lowered the car, they wedge shapeified it, which is a, a very technical term, um, but it created this. You can tell he's been working with me because he has to explain <laughs> things very very simply. <laughs> but it has this uh, square cross sectional area, which um, allows you to create this uh, a better polar moment of inertia, so you don't have as much chassis flex it's lower to the ground therefore you've got a lower center of gravity uh, it was a better uh, platform for all of the aerodynamic tools as well so you uh, there was a lot that the car did and it had uh, it continued 
although by 1975 it wasn't particularly competitive um a lot of the cars on the grid kind of spawned from that uh you see you had the um uh, mclaren m23 for example that was very similar designed to the lotus i think was it the penske pc3 or pc4 that was very very similar in design as well there are a lot of cars that were that owed its uh uh, at the very least, their aesthetics to the Lotus seventy four, uh, Lotus seventy two, if not more. I absolutely agree. I think it it does sort of set the template for what a modern single seater racing car would look like, both in Formula One and elsewhere. Um, and it won twenty World Championship Grand Prix during its long, long career, which is more than any other car on this list. And some of the ones that get close to that have done it in a season where there were just more races and it's dominated. Whereas this is, you know, its first win came in nineteen seventy. It was still winning in nineteen seventy four. Uh, and those 20 wins don't count the non-championship F1 races it won as well. We used to have quite a few of those. Uh, and Jackie Hicks was still able to win at Brands Hatch in 1974. So the car really was uh, was old by then. And uh, Alex, two iconic liveries as well. If we're going for the fever rating, Gold Leaf and JPS, it doesn't really get much better than that, does it? No, absolutely. As you say, Kev, iconic with those colours. You know, they just just screams the era doesn't it you can just picture it in your mind so easily um but yeah again coming back to the longevity factor for me i think this it has to win here the lotus 72 over the the lotus 79 just it just kept going didn't it? it kept going and it kept being successful and you just think of you just think of uh you know Joachim Rint and and fittipaldi and you can just you can just see the colors it's just yeah it's iconic as you say Absolutely, won won the drivers' championship with Rint in seventy. Posthumously, sadly, after his accident at, at Monza, Emerson Fittipaldi in nineteen seventy two, uh, and it did win the constructors' championship in seventy three as well. Um, but they Emerson Fittipaldi and Ronnie Peace and took points off each other, and Jackie Stewart in what I believe is one of the greatest F one campaigns of all time managed to win in the stubby Tyrrell stubby Tyrrell double oh six. Um, but I don't think we should leave the Lotus seventy nine completely alone, Luke. It did. It was quite. A, if we're talking game changer. Not long term, I suppose, because the rules change. But for a brief moment of time, everyone needed to copy it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, on, on the ground effect side, like that was such an important car. Like it was, as you say, another sort of kind of paradigm shift, even if it was only a very, very short term one. Uh, Mario Andretti obviously winning that title in 78. That was a, a, a huge, I think, uh, a huge success for one of the most legendary races ever. Um, and I think, yeah, it's it's a cool car. It is undoubtedly a cool car and has a huge place within F1 history, I think, on that ground effect front. But uh, yeah, I think, as, as you guys said, just in terms of longevity, I don't think it can quite be ahead of the Lotus 72 on this front. I think you could make a case that the, the 79 could have had longevity but the problem with Colin Chapman at that time was he he'd take an idea he'd bring it to reality and then look for the next one rather than try and refine that car and so by the time they brought ground effects out so it was on originally on the I think the 70 78 and then was refined for the Lotus 79 then that was sort of like put to one side um uh and meanwhile you had teams like Williams and Ligier and all of those taking that sort of ethos that design and moving the game on and refining that rather than going okay what's the next one oh double chassis um so well and the lotus 80 itself was supposed to be uh, just a, a wing all of its own wasn't yeah. it and that didn't that didn't work either <laughs> no so um yeah it, it could have it could have had longevity if they persisted with it and were patient with it but um i think uh, Chapman was was at that point um he, you know he'd done a load of great things and he was like trying to replicate past successes and coming at it quick fire and it just wasn't wasn't really happening 
No, I think you're absolutely right about it. And, and actually, I spoke to Clive Chapman, his son, about this as well. And he, he, he was absolutely uh, said the same thing, that, that, that Colin wanted to move on to the next thing. Mario Andretti had been telling uh, Chapman, apparently, that the car wasn't stiff enough and it was flexing. And to get the most out of grand effects, they needed a stiffer car. And, but Colin was on to the next thing. And of course, Patrick Head basically just came along and designed a better Lotus 79, really, which was what the Williams FW07 was, which is why it's not on this list, but it certainly deserves an honourable mention, obviously the first championship winning uh, Williams. Um, but instead, we're going to go on to... Uh, uh, so I think we're definitely putting the Lotus 72 through. Lotus 79, honourable mention, fantastic looking car, um, but doesn't make it through on the longevity stakes. Um, but we've got two McLarens. I, I'm going to slightly surprise the guys here because I've slightly gone uh, gone off piste here. The McLaren MP41, which brings in another innovation, which I'll ask Jake about in a minute, or the MP42, which did was a family of cars that did a lot of winning. So, Jake, tell us about why the MP41 is on this list. Well, it's the first carbon fibre monocoque chassis. Um which was a John Barnard, John Barnard innovation. Uh, I think it was it was Hercules Aerospace he went to and sourced a load of this carbon fibre to produce the monocoque. Um, at the time, it was a, a sort of folded carbon monocoque, so basically you sort of cut little bits out of the reverse side and then re-bolt it together and bend it and that kind of thing. It's sort of, when you look at it now, it's very, very primitive because everything's done holistically in an autoclave rather than you know you, you cut bits out of it and that kind of thing so it, in retrospect it's quite priv- uh, primitive but it, it again it changed the game because it's like what we still have now um it it changed the game with regards to aerodynamics because uh, at the rear you had where the side pods fold inwards and behind and around the rear tires which creates a sort of suction effect uh speeds up the airflow over the at the rear of the car and therefore whatever the floor produces it's a lot more a lot more powerful downforce wise so it had all of these innovations um and yeah as you say it did change the game um and it was you know a phenomenal car and of course it launched McLaren's domination of the 1980s Formula 1 really even though it didn't do it itself and of course it made it safer John Watson did a pretty good testing job at Monza of the uh, of what we'd now call a safety cell by completely destroying a car at the Lesmos and stepping out the car okay which I think rather proved the strength of the sort of carbon fibre concept but I'm going to throw Alex's question back at him at this point and say so the MP41 Huge game changer, innovation, sets up McLaren for the decade, but only wins six races, doesn't win a world championship. The MP4 too, you could argue, is just carrying that theme along with the tag Porsche engine thrown in as well, um, but wins 22 races uh, and wins championships in 84, 85 and 86. Probably shouldn't have won in 86. That was, a, that was an Alain Prost 1973 season. Uh, getting in between the, the, the quicker Williams of Nigel Mansell, Nelson Piquet, but so which one of these cars should we pick, the innovator or the winner? I think I think pick the winner personally, because it's the same. You could argue it's the same car, just refined. Um, but yeah, that is, this is a philosophical question for the podcast, Kev. Um, yeah, that that uh, that that uh, that that it has the edge for me there because it was successful. But I can understand why. The first car, the MP4 One, is the game changer because of the carbon fibre monocoque. But yeah, that would be my preference. What do you think, Luke? I'm I'm, I'm very much on the fence with these two. I, I'm I'm quite happy with 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 either. So, what do you reckon? Uh, I'm going to side with Alex. I think yeah, you got to got to go for the winner. I think it's a, a car that uh, 
across uh, Alan Pross and Nicky Lauda. Like, it took both of them to titles. And as you say, yeah, Pross season was probably, uh, did maybe flatter the actual performance of, of, of that car. But I think it's, uh, yeah, I would I would go with that just as a, as a refined version. And also, can we add in the Nicky Lauda factor? The fact that he wins the title with McLaren in, in what is the only successful motorsport comeback, really, after a significant break. And if you include, I, I just I just think the Nicky the Nicky Lauda story of which that car is a part gets it over the line for me because his his comeback at Monza is the, I think the greatest sporting comeback arguably of all time in any sport, definitely in motorsport. Um, yeah, so I think I've, I'd give it I'd give the the MP4 two over the MP4 one because of that and an extra little boost for for my votes as it were. Fair enough. So I'll put the uh, we'll put the MP4 two through. MP four two through. Um, that's hard to say. That's hard to say. Um, but we're going to move on to another McLaren, which is a bit of a fan favourite. But I'm going to be making an argument against it. But I'm going to allow Luke to make the argument for because I can see he's already disagreeing with the fact that I'm going to make an argument against it, which is good. This is exactly what we want. Um, so the McLaren MP four four. Why should it be here? Because it is the most dominant car in Formula One history, and that's that's undisputable um 15 wins out of 16 races would have been 16 out of 16 had not been for a, a slow moving uh, jean-louis schlesser who obviously got uh, in the way of uh, oh kev's pulling a face oh we're gonna have an argument about oh, that wait, okay no way in hell was that schlesser's okay. fault <laughs> I, I actually agree with but, kev on that one anyway fair fair for the uh, but without without that clash it would have been it probably would have been a, a clean sweep 16 wins out of 16 races and yeah it's just like that is the and it gave rise to the Senna Pross rivalry, and which was so important in defining that sort of late eighties, early nineties era of Formula One. And again, I just think it's it just completely it, it's just the most dominant car ever produced in Formula One, and I think that's that's incredible. Uh, but I'm interested to hear what the counter argument to that is. Would anyone else like to step in before I uh, before before I go forth? No, we're waiting for you to. We're waiting for you to shock the airway. Keen anticipation. Okay, yes, absolutely. So here we go. First of all, weakened opposition compared to some of the other cars on this list. Um, It was changing rules. A lot of people going normally aspirated. Ferrari dropped the ball. Uh, McLaren and Honda decided to carry on. Lotus rule at sea. And they had the two best drivers in the world. The only one who could get close to them at that point was Nigel Mansell, who had a normally aspirated Judd in the back of his Williams. So, you know, he could occasionally worry them early on, but then goodbye. Um, uh, so I don't think it had a particularly strong uh, field to race against. Um, and I would argue that technically it was uh, it was the end of a line. It wasn't groundbreaking. It was a, it was a fantastic example of a Formula 1 team getting as close to perfection and as you say statistically really close to perfection um as it could get but it didn't it didn't really change the game turbocharged cars were 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 on their way out that's really the opportunity mclaren and honda took was to to really nail the last year of the lower boost regulations in in formula one in 1988 um so it didn't really lead anywhere and you could argue that the most technically significant car of 1988 was actually adrian newey's march 881 which if you look at that car and the aerodynamic approach to it uh, I think is, is is probably you can see more of a modern F1 car in that than you can in the McLaren. But I, that, but perhaps that's more of a question for Jake. Is that is that fair that uh, the March, which obviously didn't win anything, would perhaps be a more interesting car from 1988? It's certainly be a more interesting car. I don't think it is results wise worthy of of this list. Um, oh no, absolutely not. I'm not suggesting it should be in instead. <laughs> from from a technical standpoint, yeah, it was the it was the car that obviously launched 
Adrian Newey into the well into the stratosphere into the pantheon of great F1 designers um and uh whereas the the MP44 it was basically a Marlboro livery Brabham if you think about it oh you're going to upset people in McLaren <laughs> there's a lot of debate about that do not go there do not go there there's an ongoing debate between Gordon Murray and other McLaren employees uh, uh, who who really designed that car Steve Nichols and co so Autosport has no opinion on the uh, the origins of that uh, that design for that I was being a little facetious but there there oh. were hallmarks uh, and uh, but as yes, you say fair. it was it was just a culmination of of McLaren putting all of these eggs into the final year of the turbocharged regulations basket and everyone else sort of straddling between the two. And of course it was going to be a weakened field. Um, yeah, as you say, Williams lost that Honda deal because um, well, McLaren rather prized it away from them um, and, and Lotus kept the other um, contract because Nelson Piquet went over there. So Williams was sort of left with the Judd, which was... It was an engine. Um, so, yeah, it was, as you say, incredibly weakened opposition. Um, but, again, it is the most dominant car in, in, a, in a season percentage-wise. So that's got to count for something. <laughs> well, let, well, it is. That's why it's on this list. I'm going to throw to Alex now, I think, because I we definitely have to have a McLaren in the final. Uh, it, you know, it's one of the great constructors. So, should it be the MP42 that we've already discussed? So, in terms of wins, 22 wins and scored titles across multiple seasons, uh, or the MP44, which had a better strike rate, 15 wins out of 16, but obviously only had its one season uh, in the sun, as it were. So, w- which one of those would you like to see in the final? Well, if you're going to leave it up to me, I think we have to put foot through the MP42 because of everything that we said before, because it follows on the game changingness of the previous uh, you know the previous situation of the car the fact that it has that cool Nicky Lauda factor of the success and things like that and the and the Alan Prost and everything that comes with it and um, I get totally get I like 1988 it is it's like it's, it's it's legendary in formula 1 history it's there's so many stories around it but you know if it if it is as you say Kev it's at the end of the line design wise you know it had didn't have to beat a whole lot of opposition although I'm, I'm hoping you're going to bring back that argument when we get to the last car on this list because i think a lot of that applies to the mercedes uh w the mercedes uh, wa5 in 2014 um but yeah i think i think if we're gonna also i like to start stir up a bit of debate i hope this is gonna you know be interesting to the listeners to anybody following along whether they disagree with us do do write in and let us know we love to hear that um so yeah go on then what let's put forward the uh, the mp42 there it is so the mp42 which initially didn't come onto our list has actually knocked out the 4-1 and the 4-4 so slightly slightly surprising there but we'll move on to uh to i guess the most famous williams i think it probably is isn't it the the fw14b especially with red five on the front for me it's uh it's just from a very cool period of formula one even though people that complain about dominant racing now i mean crikey 1992 the first few races they were not exciting races apart from spain because it rained and that was quite good um but uh, so it's the Williams FW 14B, 10 wins from the 16 races, Adrian New, Patrick Headcar. Uh, it was one almost 1.5% faster across the season than any other car. Um, uh, but unlike the MP44, I think it had to overcome uh, some pretty uh, stern opposition. If you think McLaren Honda at that point had been the team to beat and Williams and Renault had been working to get up to that point and then all singing, all dancing. But of course, Jake, arguably this is 
the most technically advanced, well, the 14B or the 15C that came after, they're the most technically advanced Formula 1 cars of all time. Uh, yes, certainly. And I don't think with the restrictions that the regulations place that we'll get anything so so dominant again. Uh, I'd just like to take you on a story of why I would like this car to go all the way to whatever end process. Is it going to be whimsical? Place. Is it going to be a whimsical Jake Boxer leg story? Uh, no, this is incredibly straightforward, I would say. It has to be Nigel Mansell's qualifying lap of the 1992 British Grand Prix, a lap that was inch perfect. Uh, I remember being shown some of the data traces in a um, in one of my modules at university. The lecturer was absolutely in love with that lap, uh, in which he was not just dominant over the rest of the manufacturers, he dominated his teammate Ricardo Patrese as well. Etten Senna, third on the grid, in the McLaren Honda, 2.7 seconds slower than Mansell on that lap. Ricardo Patrese, in the same car, arguably, 1.9 seconds slower. That car was something else. And, and that, just that's fantastic that you've mentioned that, because uh, I was looking this up for another reason the other day. In terms of percentage of lap time, that is the most dominant pole in world championship history. So, uh, obviously, in terms of time, it isn't because there were races at Nürburgring and much longer circuits than Silverstone. But as a as a percentage of the lap, it's the biggest pole margin that uh, F1 has, has ever seen. And, and you've got to think with the way the regulations have gone, even just you know, taking into account Mercedes' incredible job the last few years, it's going to be a struggle to, to get that. Um, and I guess it's also a function of how much Mansell was more comfortable in that car than, than Ricardo Pedreza. You had run him a bit closer the year before. Um, so... The reason uh, that I put this in instead of the 15C, which was really a more refined version, um, so we've got active suspension, traction control, they experimented with ABS on the 15C as well. Um, uh, but Luke, I, I feel that the 14B is just a bit cooler. So bringing in the fever factor, slightly bigger rear tyres, red five, Nigel Mansell's helmet out at the top. Uh, I, maybe it's a British bias, which I try not to get sucked into too often. But for me, for me, that is just a very cool car. And I know Karun Chandok thinks so as well, who's, uh, who's had the pleasure of driving it in recent times. Yeah, 100% agree with you. I think you sort of think about uh, Mansell Mania and that sort of era of Formula One. And uh, this is the car really that, that does tick all those boxes and bring those memories back. And yeah, it is just, it's, it's all bells and whistles, basically, isn't it? It's sort of do, pushing the technical envelope as much as you can with a Formula One car. And as you said, with the regulations subsequently going as they did it meant that you could never really have anything like this again where you just kind of thought well, let's put absolutely everything we can on there really so uh yeah i think i think that is i think that is just notable in itself and i think on a fever rating i think we've got to we've got to talk it up like it is i think the i would i would agree with your opening point that it's sort of the definitive williams formula one car i would say no arguments at all so through goes the 14b uh, and i think we may be similarly unanimous about the next car because if we're talking ultimate Formula One cars, the, the, the next period of uh, that people talk about, especially now because of the engine sounds, um, the sort of the three-litre V10 era, uh, and obviously the Marcus Schumacher, Ross Braun, Rory Byrne, Jean Tot era of Ferrari, and the, the ultimate car of that, uh, Alex, the F2004, which is just an incredible piece of kit, isn't it? It is. I was particularly keen to talk about this because I think it might be my favourite Formula One car of all time just because of, you know, when I was growing up and, and watching everything, you know, on TV and, and being, you know, a fan of Michael Schumacher at the time and what they did there. It just, 
it was the one that it's the culmination of everything of that super team of Jean Todd, Ross Braun, Rory Byrne, Michael Schumacher, everybody there, right? All comes together. Obviously, they've been winning since 2000 and winning very well. 2003, you know, they have a little bit of a fight back from McLaren and Williams. There's, you know, there's an argument to be made that Kimi Raikkonen could have won that season, whether he deserved to, slightly different, you know, slightly different argument there. But the F2004 comes along. And it's just, again, it's just another step more brilliant. It sort of ends that run of Ferrari bringing in, you know, it's, uh, it's carrying on the previous season's car for a few races and then introducing a new one like what happened in 2003. Whereas the F2004, they rock up in Australia. And it's it's just it's just the most dominant of the of the season. I know F2002 as well, um, particularly good campaign with Schumacher. But yeah, 15 wins from 20 races. It's iconic. My question of it is, and maybe I'll throw it to Jake here, how technically advanced would you say that compared to the other cars of the era? I It's hard to say because I think it was. this is a case of rather than there being anything outlandishly technically advanced about it, I think it was just a car that was designed exceedingly well. It was, it was as you say, it was a combination of the almost like I think it was about eight years since uh, you had the Schumacher, Braun, Burn trio join the team, and if you remember a decade earlier, Ferrari was in absolute disarray before Jean Tot came on board. It was an absolute management shambles, um, and Luca de Monsano came back as president, brought Jean Tot in to crack the whip a little bit. And this this was the combination of that. This was everything that they'd worked towards. This was the result of Ross Braun banning uh, La Gazzetta dello Sport from the office because it was too negative about Ferrari. This is the combination of Ross Braun moving the engine department next to the chassis design department so that they could work close together. This is the combination of Rory Byrne having all of these mad design ideas, pushing that undercut side pods idea Um just taking on all of these ideas and keeping developing them and obviously the the 2003 car was sort of it, it was sort of like a beta version of that um it had all of these these aspects but it wasn't quite refined yet and the f2004 took all of those things refined them pushed the envelope and it was a fantastic car and Luke, I was thinking, does it tick that game changer box that, that we sort of, Alex is kind of hinting at with the technical thing? Um, and I think we're into an era where it is incremental gains in all areas, isn't it? A little bit like the Mercedes. But I did think, could you make a case for its Ferrari's relationship with Bridgestone and being able to develop a car and tyre in unison uh, in a way probably to a higher degree than any a, a, anyone else before? Does that in itself make it a game changer, making the tyre development very much like making the engine development became a, became a thing with working with a manufacturer? Do, do we think it gets that, that box ticked? I think that's a very good point, yeah, uh, because that was obviously the big downfall for Ferrari through 2003 was that they sort of had this this fluctuating tyre performance and the, the, the Michelin shod teams were able to be way ahead on occasion and uh, Ferrari really worked on that. Like, they really sort of put everything, in, a lot of effort in with the 2004 car to get on top of those tyre issues and it's the idea of, as you say, incremental gains. You sort of look at what went wrong last season and just 
do everything you can to be marginally better in every single area and focus on it. And and that's what they did with that car. And obviously the the relationship with Bridgestone it was it became uh, it became too close for I think the liking of many. And obviously uh, I guess sowed the seeds for the Indy 2005 uh, shambles that we had. And ultimately a tire war then disappeared completely uh, come 2007. And it's uh, so I think I think game changer. I think that's a that's a really good way to look at it. I mean obviously in quite mature regulations to sort of still tick that box and still find another area they could innovate i guess with that kind of thinking um that does work uh i'll also make a case on the fever rating as well just because it is like it's just it's just bloody cool like i we were at hockenheim last year um for the grand prix and mick schumacher did a, a, a show run uh, behind the wheel of it and i'd never seen the f2004 in the flesh before and i never heard it before and both of those i was just like this is i i really don't mind the sound of the current generation f1 cars but you hear that and you're just like it's amazing uh, yeah, I agree. And actually, if you look at old, old, it doesn't really feel that old. I mean, it's 16 years old, but um, the way it moves on track, they're so much lighter, those cars. You know, you were used to Lewis Hamilton on a qualifying lap and it's all, yeah, obviously it's very impressive, but it's all uh, big turning speed. It's it's kind of big downforce, big power, whereas the, the Ferrari just looks so much more agile over curbs. It's hopping and skipping around and uh, and you can see it's uh, when Mark Schumacher is really on it and at one with that car, you can see the rotation into a corner. You can't normally see that on the television, how much a, a driver is rotating a car, but you actually can with that. It's, it, it's really quite quite incredible. Um, and there's absolutely no way this car is, is, is going to miss out on going through to the, to the final. It would de- definitely be there. I mean, one thing that makes it look less dominant, if you look at the qualifying, uh, it was quite often beaten in qualifying uh, or, or run very close. And that was, of course, the t- a function of the tyres and the regulations at the time. But in the races, just an example, at Monza, when both Barrichello and Schumacher managed to have little moments early on, wrong tyre choice, etc., they had two of them steam past Jensen Button in the second half of the race who'd been leading. Like, he, like different, you know, it was a different race, and they were second a lap quicker than everything else during the course of the race, which is a level of dominance, as you say, with such mature regulations is amazing. So the F2004 definitely goes through as the greatest Ferrari of a very great Ferrari team. Uh, which rather neatly brings us to the to the Mercedes, current Mercedes team. Um, Alex has already mentioned the W05, which got the ball rolling in 2014, 16 wins out of 19. Uh, and I'd like to throw it up against the W07, 19 wins from 21. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to throw to you, Alex, which one of those silver arrows should, if either, should either of them be going through to the final i mean actually in a weird way i'd I'd like to i'd almost like to see what future alex jake kevin luke would be discussing maybe this time next year once we've once we've seen the results of this season's mercedes because it is just so completely fantastic the w11 but i think it has to be the the first one the 2014 car because it comes back to something i questioned this earlier on in the podcast but the fact that it it's a game changer in terms of its engine okay yeah mercedes the, the regulations are set they were told what you know, what size engine and and what type of engine they had to produce, but they did it so much better than everybody else. Now, again, as I sort of hinted at earlier, you could make a case that the Mercedes team in this this season is up against a weakened opposition, but it's only because that opposition just did a bad job when it came to, like, the engine manufacturers producing their engines. Like, you've got a fantastic driver in Fernando Alonso, arguably, you know, um, Hamilton's equal at that time, Sebastian Vettel was well, but you know he he underperforms that season when it comes to going up against Daniel Ricciardo in the Red Bull. But I think you've got to put the 2014 Mercedes through because it starts it starts it off and it wins immediately. It's not like the MP4 uh, one, which doesn't win. It takes it it takes a bit of refining. This car is immediately 
on the money, on the ball. You know, it it was inevitable what was going to happen that season. I don't think anybody maybe predicted that it would, we'd still be talking six, seven years later about how good and how dominant Mercedes are. But that's arguably the, the, the you know the fault of the opposition they, they still haven't caught up and Mercedes are still finding gains with with the engine package obviously different aerodynamic regulations from 2017 but yeah so for me I think you've got to take the 2014 car over the 2016 car I'm perfectly comfortable with that any objections from uh, from Luke or, or, or Jake there I don't but I would like to play devil's advocate quickly you uh, never do that this is so <laughs> out of character for you but it's like we spoke about the MP44 earlier and uh, how its its impacts are not diminished as such, but when you consider its opposition being considerably weakened, um, you would surely have to make that counterpoint for the MP the WA5 as well, uh, simply because again Ferrari was the car was poor and the engine wasn't particularly good. All of its Mercedes rivals were sort of midfield teams, and although they benefited from that that amazing power unit you know williams is probably the team that ran them closest and that car was a little bit more one-dimensional looking at it in retrospect than perhaps it looked at the time um red bull weren't you know they took three wins courtesy of daniel ricardo but it wasn't really in the picture um that renault power unit at the start of the season was dreadful (laughs) and it looked like letting itself go every five minutes um so there was no real opposition for mercedes that year but i guess the argument though and perhaps throw to luke here is but was there any better opposition in 2016 because ferrari looked better in 2015 than 14 but dropped the ball again in 16 uh red bull obviously were still having their i was gonna say love hate but i think it was probably to hate hate relationship by then with renault williams uh had obviously got the same engine but were never going to beat mercedes aerodynamically so is 2016 any stronger opposition than 2014? Yeah, I see the point. But also, the regulations are that much more mature by then as well. So you sort of uh, it's another couple of years that everyone should have admittedly um, made that step forward. And again, like it's uh, okay, the the fault is on them for not really taking full advantage of that and still having the, the issues that they did face. But I think that for me, the idea of a car winning 19 out of 21 races. And again, it really uh, should have and could have, but had it not been for the the clash in Spain and uh, then uh, Hamilton's uh, famous no, no, no issue in Malaysia, then uh, it would have been a clean sweep of of all 21 races. And to win, uh, it's just a phenomenal number. And the the reliability of that car was just, it was just, well, apart from, I guess, that scenario, it was was close to being pretty perfect. So, yeah, I... It's the fact we're that much further along in the regulations and it's another couple of years that everyone really should have been caught catching up and yet Mercedes were able to still be even more dominant. And I think that has that also set the tone for what we have continued to see right the way through the V6 hybrid era and I think really leading up to this year in terms of just the, the mini revolutions, I think they've called it in the past, that they always focus on every single season and just keep making these gains year on year on year and, and build it up. And I think that's what we really saw come to a, a peak in, in 2016 with the W07. But I think you guys have made a good enough case for the W05 that I'm not going to have any opposition to that going through. Uh- I was just going to say, much against my better judgment, I am going to agree with Alex. I think the car, it's the car, it's the start point. If you like, the F two thousand and four is the end of the uh, the end of the, the the Ferrari domination, and that's the start of the Mercedes one. Um, and, and in that sense, it's a game changer with the engine. But just to 
just a few stats to kind of back up what Alex hinted at there about, I think, in 18 months' time, a year's time, this will be a different conversation. Um, in 2014, the Mercedes was 0.88% faster than the opposition. The 2016 car was 084 When they brought the wider cars in, Ferrari got their act together and the gap has actually been uh, around about point, less than 0.2% until this year. The gap so far on fast it on pure pace is over one percent. That's the first time that's happened in Formula One since the nineteen ninety three Williams FW fifteen C, which was when, as we were talking about earlier, all singing, all dancing. So to get that level of advantage with mature regulations, having been at the top for that long, and then if they go and win, they're going to win almost every race this year. They could, they've got to keep the same basic car for next year. The W eleven in eighteen months' time will probably be a a quadruple championship winning car and the car that Lewis Hamilton has beaten Marcus Schumacher's career records with. I, I think that um, hopefully we'll get to do this maybe at Autosport 75 and I think the W the W11 will be a very strong contender. But for now, I think we can't we can't go with what we think is going to happen. We're going to go with what has happened and therefore the W05 it is that goes through to the final. So before we look at those cars that we've got, uh, I just want to have a couple of honourable mentions and I'll then throw it over to you guys in case you think we've missed anything. Really going back a long way, the Peugeot L76 1912 to 14 Grand Prix car, which brought in four valve per cylinder, dual overhead camshaft engine, and basically proved to the world that you didn't just need to keep making engines bigger to make them better. Um, so that that car deserves an honourable mention. The Alpha P3, which effectively invented the single seater up until that point, you'd had riding mechanics. Can you imagine Lewis Hamilton with his with his uh, one of his engineers alongside him going around? Seems quite crazy. But the Alpha P3 was one of the cars that changed that. And uh, the McLaren M23. I think you could have put up against the Lotus 72, but it's always going to lose. It didn't win as much. It didn't have quite as much longevity. And the Ferrari 312 T series, uh, and I excluded that in the end on the basis that was the 312 T and the 312 T4, were they the same car? Obviously they weren't. They were. They, you could have given them a different designation. So I thought that was stretching the point. But are there any cars that I've not mentioned, or we've not talked about chaps that you think deserve, a, uh, deserve at least a shout out, if not a final place? Tyrrell 019. <laughs> Any sensible suggestions from people that like cars that win rather than tool around at the back, Jake Botsell? I didn't tool around at the back. That changed for no, the face know, of Formula that One. Was, that was a bit harsh. It. It's quite a cool looking car as well. It was a gorgeous car. Gorgeous car. I think the 312T was probably the only one I'd, I would have flagged up uh, big time on the fever racing, but no, I oh, think it all covered it. Maybe put forward the Braun from 2009. Not, it would never, you know, it wouldn't make it through the final it'd just be interesting to, to talk about considering the regulation change the story of that team what it went through things like that that would just be interesting to be in, in you know i think it deserves an honorable mention but yeah i don't think it needed a place on the list i was just going to say also red bull yeah the same of the same period you know we've not had a red bull through i mean for me i hugely admire red bull as a team and actually quite like the current cars but the cars that did all the winning i found quite i didn't find particularly fever but uh you know blown diffusers and sebastian vettel blowing everyone away that's certainly worth a mention. And actually, of course, when we ran, to go back to Alex's point about the Braun, when Allsport ran a, a fan poll to pick out their you know, favourite F1 cars, oh, I think it was about three years ago now, the Braun did very, very well. Uh, I think it ended up losing to the MP44, which, of course, we've already knocked out. So um, there we go. We're already upsetting everyone. Um, so the, the, the final list we've come to then, the Mercedes-Benz W125, the Cooper T51, the Lotus 25, 
the Lotus 72, the McLaren MP4 2, the Williams FW14B, the Ferrari F2004, and the Mercedes W05. So they're our kind of Hall of Fame cars, if you like. Do we want to start losing them, chaps, or is there a particular car that you want to champion uh, and that we can that discuss? Perhaps if we all pick a car, and um, we'll see what that leaves us with. Uh, who wants to go first? I'll take the Mercedes W05 from 2014. If you just think of what Formula One is now, this is where it all started. And there's good and bad points to that. A lot of people find it frustrating. A lot of people criticise Mercedes entirely incorrectly, in my view, for the problems that Formula One has now. The team has just simply done the best job. And it continues to do the best job. Lewis Hamilton says for a reason we're the best team in Formula One because it's backed up by what they do, by all the success, by everything that happens. You think like there's some exceptional squads in Formula One. Red Bull, great example of that. But they're just falling short again and again and again because of what a good job Mercedes does. And it all started in 2014. They put a lot of investment into the engine uh, package, into the regulations all through, you know, the years leading up to that point. And it just, it's just it, it defined its era in terms of that. This is 60 years ago now, 2014, and it continues. Mercedes continues to, to dominate as we speak. So, yeah, that's why I would uh, suggest the, uh, the the W05. But I suspect I will lose out in the final vote or the final decisions. It's not the one I thought you would go for. Let's. Um, who, who wants to go next? Luke, do you want to? I can go next. I, I'm torn between the Williams and the Ferrari, but I think think I'm going to go with the Ferrari F2004 because I think it is I think I would I would look at it in an opposite way to how Alex has explained it with the Mercedes in terms of that I think this is the sort of the culmination of everything that Ferrari dream team I guess could really produce and put together and sort of if you were working towards I guess the perfect car within a set of regulations I think that that would be the car that ticks all those boxes, and I think, and I think that is maybe how we're going to potentially look at the Mercedes W11 in years to come. I think that's how the sort of Ferrari S2004 is a similar kind of vibe from it. Really, it was uh, just being that dominant and that uh, that perfect, really, and that that's what it's all about. So, yeah, I would I would go with that one. I think. Can I just say the reason why I didn't go for the Ferrari was just because I, I agree with all of that what Luke said, but it's the fact that it's 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 the product of something. It, it's not in itself the better product if you see what i mean whereas the mercedes does that but I, I totally get your point and i like i said i personally love that car and prefer it you know you know a subjective way but uh that anyway that that was my uh reasoning for not picking that one so jay what are you going to throw in and then i'll throw mine in assuming that all four are different and then uh, we'll nail it down uh i'm gonna pick the lotus 72 um for all of the reasons i explained earlier it's a cool looking car uh, it looks amazing. It changed the game in so many ways. I think, I think when we've done something similar to this before, I, I push for this then as well. Um, and I think that because all of the current Formula One cars at least owe their physical uh, appearance to the Lotus Seventy Two, I'm going to push for that. Thank you very much. Yes, very interesting. I, I had two cars that I thought this would come down to when we started, and the two I had on my list were the Lotus 72 and the Ferrari F2004. So I'm very pleased that uh, those those are the finalists. Um, I think Alex's point about the Mercedes is valid. I think it probably, if we brought in the fever scale, I think the Merc does fall down compared to the F2004 and the Lotus 72. Uh, I didn't like those narrow regulations. I think the cars look much better now 
that they've gone wider and beefier and cooler. Um, and I think we've also talked about the level of competition. Um, so I definitely think that uh, I think we're in a Ferrari versus Lotus situation. I think I'm going to go for the Lotus. And I'm going to go for that because uh, if it's longevity, it's impact on Formula One was bigger. I don't know how much the F2004 changed the game. We talked about the tyres thing, which we're looking for a looking for a reason. I think certainly F2004 is a product of, you know, the the, the debate about which is the great Formula One team of all time is a straight fight between Braun era Ferrari and and the current Mercedes team. I think that you know, no disrespect to Colin Chapman and and all the great teams that have gone before, but they're optimizing in a very competitive environment. The overall history of Formula One is it's been getting more competitive. So for the F two thousand and four to be that dominant, and for the W eleven to be as dominant as it is, I think says a lot for those teams. But I think for setting the template of what a Grand Prix car looks like, um, it's got the DFV engine in as well, which is the greatest F one engine. Great liveries multiple drivers across multiple seasons won it it won five five championships in different years um and it's got more wins than any other car on this list so for me it kind of ticks it ticks all the boxes it's fever it changed the game uh and it won loads so and and just just is everyone happy with just come in on that yeah definitely agree with that kev but i like jake's point in the fact that you can trace what the current formula one looks like back to that car and i think that the fact that it's still it's still having an impact. It's pretty cool. So yeah, again, I'm, 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 I mean, 13 year old Alex would hate what I'm saying right now because of how much I love the F2004. But, but yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a very sensible decision that we've reached there. Also, I know you like stories, Alex, and the Lotus 72 story is fantastic. You know, they brought in anti-dive suspension. It didn't work. They fixed it. They got it up and running. And then the tyre technology changed in 71. They had to get their head around that and they did it in time to then win in 72. And then, of course, it had this great period as it kind of gradually got older, but they struggled to replace it. Even Lotus struggled to come up with a better car. Uh, uh, and it, it was almost so good, it sent them into the doldrums for a couple of years. They didn't know what to do next until they got to ground effect. So, yeah, it's um, it also happens to be, just as an aside, I, I believe it's Clive Chapman's favourite Lotus as well, which which is quite which is quite cool. Um, so there we go. Um, I think we actually have a conclusion, and there wasn't there were, there were no no fisticuffs or shouting or anything. That's uh, very good. We can say that um, the Autosport's greatest Grand Prix car is the Lotus Seventy Two. So let us know what you think on social media, and you can also email us at autosport at autosport.com. Tell us what we got wrong and what we should have had. Did we miss anything completely? I, I think we've covered most most of the possibilities, um, but um, I'm sure there are some Williams Williams and McLaren fans out there who are probably not uh, not too not too happy. But um, that just leaves me to thank you, the listener, and of course Luke, Jake, and Alex. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it uh, as much as I did. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Most footwear brands overlook natural materials for cheaper synthetic alternatives. But when it comes to quality, Mother Nature knows best. Allbirds took that idea and ran to create their iconic wool runners. Wool runners are made with premium supernatural materials that are both comfy and durable. So you can run to the ends of the earth or just to the store. Plus, they're machine washable to stay looking as fresh as the first day you got them. The Wool Runner Upper is made with superfine ZQ certified merino wool that's breathable, temperature regulating, and moisture wicking. And the sugarcane based sweet foam midsoles cushion your feet and put a little bounce in every stride with all day support. Allbirds are constantly innovating to increase the performance and longevity of their materials. Even on your toughest outings, you'll wear out before your shoes do. This year, take a big step forward for Mother Nature with the Allbirds Wool Runner. Discover your perfect pair today at allbirds.com. That's A L L B I R D S.com. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChapaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.